Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge we broadcast on lands of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this live-to-air broadcast. We acknowledge continued resilience of First Nation people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monday Breakfast. And it's quite a cold, cold morning out there, but hopefully uh, we've got a great show this morning, so hopefully we can uh, warm everyone's minds and hearts and ears up. Um, So I've got Jackson in the studio. Thanks for joining us, Jackson. Hi, James. It's good to be here, as usual. Well, um, it is great to be here. It's lovely and warm inside 3CR. It is. Um, I, I guess, you know, by this time we start to surely get used to the cold weather. Yeah, I always find, I was actually just thinking um, on the way over here, mid-July, it's just, you just adjust, don't you? We're, we're an adaptable species. Yes. Um, and yeah, it's not as, not as much of a torment getting out of bed at night in the, in the morning. It's kind of, it just feels like par for the course, to borrow a very bourgeoisie phrase. We had the uh, fire going um, outside so yesterday afternoon, so it was lovely to enjoy a bit of the, you know, chat by the fire. Mm, good chat? Yes, great chat. What were you discussing? Um, there was a bit of gardening going on in um, the backyard, so there's a bit of um, fruit tree pruning and mm. some, yeah, learning a little bit about that, I guess. Not an area of my expertise, but... Always happy to learn new skills. Mm, How was your weekend, Jackson? You you went away? Yeah, I was in Yandoit, a little town outside of Dalesford, which I think was settled by Italian immigrants around the turn of the 19th to 20th centuries. A lot of beautiful old stone buildings, and I was staying in one of those that had been renovated. But it was very nice because there was no internet, no television, no radio. They had very kindly left a pretty well-stocked iPod and some speakers, but apart from that, it was just, yeah, attending the fire, chatting, playing some very extended board games, mm. which is how cool I am on my holidays. What were the board games? Oh, I played one by a French guy, uh, Ros- Rosy, his name is, um, called Time Stories, where okay. you're kind of uh, inserted back into various historical locations and... Um, you have to take over the the bodies of people from those times and avoid time ruptures that you're not quite sure what they are. They're kind of like murder mystery mm. role-playing board games, I guess. They take as long to learn as they do to play. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly sounds like a lovely weekend. It was nice. Um, well, on the show today, um, coming up um, quite soon, actually, um, first up, we've got Gideon Haig, who... Is um yeah I'd say you know one of Australia's 
great writers, really, and mm. he writes on a lot of different issues, um, cricket, on workers' issues, and he's written um, a lot of books himself and writes regularly for um, the, the Australian and, and other lots of other publications. And uh, he's going to be talking about... Uh, Oh, it's from the Australian Book Review, which um, we, we sometimes often get people from to come in and, and chat. And he's speaking on David Graeber's um, theory around kind of jobs that are... Baloney. Yes. Um, Baloney jobs for our yeah. breakfast audience. Jobs that, well, Graeber describes them as jobs that neither the worker themselves or the rest of society at, live, at large believe contribute to society. So mm. I guess he kind of targets white-collar middle management, people responsible for human resources or efficiency gains or public relations who, when quizzed, can't actually tell you what it is they do, mm. apart from earn a decent income. Uh, and after that, we have alternative news, and we've got some great things to chat about there. Yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Richard Dennis's new quarterly essay, Dead Right, How Neoliberalism Ate Itself, which ties in pretty well with Graeber's theory, actually, about baloney jobs. Uh, and after that, we're going to have a chat, continuing our discussion we've had for a number of weeks now around men's violence. Um, we're going to be chatting, um, I guess, about what is posed, I guess, is some of the solutions to that is... is um, Criminalisation is... More prisons. More prisons, more security, more surveillance. So we're going to have a chat around that. Mm. Uh, then we'll go into Over the Wall, which is a continued discussion about tenancy issues with Mike O'Brien from the Tenancy Union. Um, following that, we have Jill Paris, who's a refugee activist and author who's written two books in collaboration with a former Manus detainee. So it's a great show, again, I think. Mm. Um and, okay, well, we might just go into um, a quick little announcement and then we'll be back with Gideon. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. It's Jim Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and 
black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And we're quite lucky enough to be joined by Gideon Haig now, who, as I said before, is, uh, you know, I guess a legendary Australian uh, writer who's um, written on many, many topics. But um, right now we're, we're chatting to... Um, Gideon about David Graeber's um, this article which came out uh, it's the original but came out I think around five years ago but it's been turned into a longer essay uh, so thanks a lot for joining us this morning Gideon that's alright um, so I guess to to start with um, what what um, for people that perhaps um, haven't heard about uh, Graeber's article it's, it's kind of bringing into contention a lot of the um, like I said kind of middle management type jobs and um, other kind of things that I guess exist, particularly around, um, you know, corporations and things like that in bigger organisations, and I guess the kind of relevancy they might have um, within, uh, you know, changing kind of um, working landscape. Yeah, well, Graeber is um, uh, an interesting and provocative thinker. He was very closely associated with the Occupy Wall Street movement, and around about that time he... Um, contributed an essay to a magazine called Strike called On the Phenomenon of Bullshit Jobs. Uh, he said he'd developed a, a, a sort of an intuition that, uh, that corporations were filling up with jobs that didn't do <clears throat> very much of anything. Um, he sort of threw in things like people working in human resources, people working in public relations, uh, people working in strategy and and legal matters, uh, they were generating uh, lots of activity to, uh, to, to no particular end. Uh, and this was a kind of a um, uh, uh, sort of a white-collar equivalent of uh, the, the sort of the, the blue-collar, um, uh, mindless uh, employment. Um, I, I think he, he defines bullshit job as a form of paid employment that is so completely pointless unnecessary or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence even though as part of the conditions of employment the employee feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case <laughs> I mean it's a it's a wonderfully entertaining thesis um, he he distinguishes it interestingly from shit jobs um, which are you know things like sort of very low-level menial employment like you know, people who clean toilets or dig ditches um, the, the white collar equivalent is, is much more genteel, but, um, but in a sense, it's, uh, he sees it as a kind of a, um, uh, an antidote or a, or a balm for the attrition that's taken place in uh, white collar workplaces as a result of neoliberalism and mechanisation, uh, and it, it sort of goes to keeping. Um, uh, Minds that might otherwise be uh, occupied by um, uh, independent thought, uh, people get, sort of keeps people's noses to uh, to a kind of a spurious grindstone. I'm interested in, in like in your review. You talked about kind of the the meaning meaningless sort of tasks that we have to do within our own jobs, and kind of that being more of a problem perhaps in itself. In you know, the endless meetings that could, maybe could have been an email yeah. themselves or, you know, all of this kind of stuff that means that we're 
we lose part of that creativity of what we can do or, you know, mm. in, indeed part of our time because we're forced to kind of be at work for a set period of time regardless right. of how much work might need to be done in that time. And mm. I think that, yeah, I think that that is a kind of speaks a, a bit to um, the kind of alienation that we might feel within our own work as well. Yes. I mean, Grover makes the point that uh, that um, uh, sort of a, sort of a 200, 250-year-old philosophy that work is a kind of moral value in itself and that anyone who doesn't want to submit themselves to some kind of intense work discipline for most of their waking hours doesn't deserve anything. So um, so this is a means of uh, getting people uh, to submit themselves to the system even if uh, the work they do is, um, is essentially... Uh, empty and, uh, and and futile, but I, I mean I, I'm less convinced by the thesis than than, than Grave. I, I don't think he actually um, satisfactorily proves he doesn't interrogate it with sufficient rigor. He might have been better off if he talked about bullshit work rather than bullshit jobs, because even in the most meaningful employment, um, there is a lot of sort of workplace bullshit, sort of. Uh, Ritual and and practice that seems to be completely unproductive, uh, that just simply goes to keeping the oils of the uh, keeping the wheels of the uh, of the corporation oiled. Um, yeah, it, it would be interesting if you if you sat down and and looked at, at every job to see how much of it is involved in even the most important job uh, involves actual kind of physical output uh, productive capacity and how much of it is to do with the sort of the maintenance of the uh, of the of the progress of the organization yeah Gideon it's Jackson here I, yeah I think I, I remember reading the initial essay five years ago mm. I haven't read the extended version but one of the things that struck me about it is is a bit what you're saying that we you know we're not encouraged to work to outcomes and work w- mm. the work that yeah. is there but instead you know we're working to yeah the the ritual of the 9 to 5 or perhaps even more with the very long overtime that many white collar workers mm. here in Australia work now as well but i was interested in your response to his his research that he attempts to back up his intuition with, mm. where he he does a survey uh, that finds that over 35%, I think, of people do not uh, or cannot say that their job has any is adding any value to society. And to me, uh, and you said you were surprised that more people didn't didn't say that. Uh, I just yeah. thought that <laughs> I, mean, I, was, I was surprised that two thirds of people thought that they did. Um, you know, God knows. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how much I add to society, but it doesn't prevent me wanting to go to work in the mornings. I didn't think that um, he he looked at um, uh, I think he said 124 online discussions and 250 personal communications collected via Twitter. With the best will in the world, I didn't find that to be particularly rigorous, rigorous. social science. Uh, Partly because, you know, such a sample would probably be self-selecting. The people who are most likely to, uh, to talk about this phenomenon are those who are most inclined to, in, to endorse it. Mm. But do you, um, how does it sit that, I feel like as a society, and, and you mentioned it before, we still have this 
this moral drive to work. You know, we talk about work yeah. being uh, the uh, antidote to mental illness at times. Yeah. We talk about, yeah. you know, which which I, I agree with in some sense. But mm. when the work, when you when you can't even see a connection, and, and perhaps it mm. is self-selecting, but when people can't see a connection between their work and the society that they are a part of, mm. isn't that concerning? Uh, I mean, Keynes, Keynes had the idea that technology would eventually release us from work and we could spend time on, on the arts and, you know, on, on other things. I, I just, uh, I, I wonder... Mean, what, would, what would we do, of course, Jackson? What would we do if it wasn't work? There, there, I mean, there, there is a kind of an existential void there mm. that, uh, that work kind of fills which I guess maybe previously was filled, filled, filled by spiritual life, but we're mm-hmm. very much a secular society now. Uh, we look for meetings in, uh, in other areas, and work is, is always there for us, even if, uh, because it, it doesn't actually have any sort of physical outcomes anymore. Many of us are involved in work that involves quite abstract ends and involves tools that are... You know that you know are activated by a kind of a scuffle of keystrokes. We don't end up with a widget at the end of the day. That leaves us with a kind of a lingering sense of uh, of, of dissatisfaction. You know, what have we been able to achieve at the end of the day? And if we cease to do that work, wouldn't the world simply go on without us? One of the things I was thinking about is, you know, during the global financial crisis, it was a lot of these kind of middle management jobs that were, you know, first taken away and. You know, I guess we've seen a lot of times since then, and I think that, um, you know, Jackson touched on automation and, you know, mm. what, what that might mean for a changing kind of job economy and job losses or, you know, at the very least, different jobs. Mm. Do you think, do these things kind of speak to the disposability of these type of middle management roles when they seem to be the first ones to be restructured? Interesting, yes, it's a good point. I mean, to be to be fair, I mean, the the, the jobs that have have disappeared most uh, most totally have been manufacturing jobs. Uh, they were at the they were in the first generation of kind of job losses to do with uh, to, to do with the reform of the economy. In a lot of ways, they died unmourned. Uh, a lot of people still had this rather Dickensian view of what working in a factory was like, and uh, and. Everyone thought, you know, what a great step forward, the fact that people no longer have to do these jobs. Uh, one of the paradoxes of this came home to me a few years ago when I, when I went over to um, Elizabeth in the last days of the, of the car industry. Uh, and at the time, um, you know, there was a sort of a, more or less a sort of a bipartisan support for the dissolution of the uh, of, of the car industry, it was perceived to be a, a, a kind of a, a burden on the public purse. Uh, the right despised it for um, for you know requiring kind of automotive subsidies or requiring some kind of level of government assistance. The left didn't like it very much either because you know, they've always had a bit of a problem with the internal combustion engine. Uh, and but the workers that I spoke to at the um, at the Holden plant there must have been some of the most stimulated and fulfilled and excited and engaged workers I've ever met. Would, they were that have... fascinated by work by making cars. They the, the process was so complicated. It was it required such levels of of continuous improvement, of constant challenge, of working with materials, and then at the end of it had the satisfaction of seeing a car roll off the end of the assembly line. But I thought, why are we letting this kind of work 
just disappear with, without a fight. Uh, this is work that has enormous satisfactions, the satisfactions that come with making something. And yet, um, I don't recall a peep on either side of politics that defended the car industry, that defended anything to do with the quality of work, uh, as distinct from the quantity. Well, I think one of the things, you know, while we see... I guess partly due to environmental concerns, some of the changing nature of manufacturing. What we haven't seen is a reskilling of those workers to mm. be put into equally um, fulfilling jobs for themselves. But mm. you know, perhaps well, those something... jobs don't exist. Frankly. Yeah, that's true. Those jobs well, don't exist. We're not creating permanent jobs. We're creating part-time jobs. A lot of those people have ended up at labour hire companies mm. on short-term contracts, not knowing um, you know what work they're going to be doing until the phone rings in the morning. Mm. Uh, you know, that's, and with, with enormous social cost uh, along the way. Well, we see yeah. the same thing for a lot of people in PR as well. It's that the companies have moved them on, but yet when, when they want to make a decision, when they need to let go of some people, they just bring in someone from the PR firm. So they actually have even less kind of, um, you know, to do with the actual workplace, but they come in to make those decisions to have those conversations that other people don't want to have, I guess. Yeah, and they perform those roles mechanically to the extent that they might conceivably down the track be replaced by machines. Yeah. That will be the next um, step along the, um, on the, along the line of the evolution of work, which will be the mechanisation of white-collar work. Uh, I think it's already happening, sort of at low levels of, uh, of, of the law. It's even happening in journalism, where robots are being mm. uh, trained to produce kind of made-to-measure uh, copy for um, for local newspapers and uh, and, and magazines. Uh, in theory, uh, the sky's the limit in terms of what robots can do. Uh, we always thought that you know, kind of ostensibly creative work um, uh, would be immune from the uh, from the forces of uh, of, of mechanisation, but I, I don't think we can confidently say that's the case anymore. Gideon, you touched on the fact that neither side of uh, government was willing to stump up the uh, loathed subsidies to save the, the, car, the yeah. automotive manufacturing industry. We've seen a bit of a shift recently from the current government around uh, investment, for example, in coal or in other forms of power, yeah. and also the massive investment into military manufacturing that Pine Indeed, and others... Yes. What, yes. what are your thoughts on that? I mean, on one, I, I find it confusing because on one hand, yes, it may lead to some ongoing uh, <laughs> employment that has something that you build at the end of it, as you were lauded, yes. but yes. on the other side, we are adding to, you know, a state of constant warfare. Yes, no, um, very confusing indeed. Uh, I guess, yeah, there's a, there's a sort of a streak of the macho about that, isn't there? You know, we can all kind of believe in defence issues. They've got a kind of a natural um, significance. Uh, but really they are substitutes for, um, for the manufacturing industry that we have so successfully gutted. Mm. Uh, well, Gideon, couldn't have you on without asking um, at least one cricket question. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to, I guess, you know... Jackson and I are also um, big AFL fans, and I think you know we see in the AFL that you have specialist coaches for almost every aspect of the game, and mm. the players speak with such high regard, not just for their senior coach, but um, you know for their trainers, for the um, you know the kicking coach. Hawthorne famously have had a coach for many years who just specialises in in kicking. Why is cricket, particularly Cricket Australia, so reluctant to embrace any kind of structure like this? It seems any time 
you know, batting coaches bought in or anything, they're, they're kind of laughed at from, you know, a lot of the players and it, they, you know, don't seem to embrace what seems to be professionalism of other coaches. Interesting question. Um, I think there's perhaps more of that than you um, than you're perhaps immediately aware of. The coaches in cricket are much less visible than the uh, than the ones at uh, at, at, at AFL level. Mm. Uh, one of the things about um, about cricket is that uh, there are lots of kind of secondary skills. You know, everyone has to do kind of everything. You know, the 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 bowler. No matter whether he's the you know, the worst batsman side, has to bat. Uh, everyone has to field. Um, cricket coaching is kind of, uh, in essence, more general rather than uh, rather than specific because the, because the game because, just because of the nature of the game. But you're right in terms of um, I think quite a lot of uh, cricket being sort of passed on in a very sort of intuitive and even kind of superstitious fashion. There's a lot of folklore around cricket. Mm. There's a lot of um, uh, oral tradition. Uh, we still look upon the cricketer as a kind of a um, uh, as an individual rather than sort of a kicking mechanism. Um, a lot of it goes to uh, the teaching of players how to handle pressure, how to handle um, crunch points in uh, in, in games. Um, how to make the choice about what skill you apply at any particular time. You know, do I bowl my slow ball here? Do I bowl my bouncer? Um, uh, what what areas of the field do I try to access? A lot, a lot more of cricket is to do with kind of one-to-one combat, as it were, rather than necessarily uh, the interactions of, of of 18 men on a um, on a on a on a sporting field, as, as is the case with, with football. So I think the two areas of coaching are, are kind of um, are quite distinct. But, I mean, there's, there's an increasingly interesting overlap between cricket and football in the sense of the development of a club culture. Uh, the Big Bash League is, uh, is kind of a version of a, a sort of a summer AFL mm. where you're encouraged to, you know, put your face paint on and, and support your, your club and, uh, and identify with its colours and, uh, and, and take an interest in its, in its fortunes. Mm. Uh, that's subtly different from the way in which we have previously supported cricket. And cricket has, uh, cricket fans tend to be a bit more ecumenical. They, uh, they they kind of like the game as distinct from from any particular team, and one of the virtues of uh, of cricket I've always felt is that proper cricket fans can see the merit in cricket performances, no matter who performs them, whether they're on your side or not. Mm. Uh, this idea of a kind of a um, of a sporting tribalism imported from football. Uh, to me, seems a, a more dramatic departure than perhaps sometimes we realise. And yet, I would agree with you, Gideon, and yet we are still in the aftermath, you could say, of a national crisis in, in response to cricket, some of the rhetoric that came from our public leaders. The um, ongoing national crisis, it's, uh, it's, it sort of seems almost to be a crisis a year. <laughs> well, I just, I just wonder what your take is on the connection between 
the, uh, between individual Australians and their cricket team. I was really taken by some of the commentary mm. after Tampergate where people said this will affect us walking into international uh, policy meetings, into business meetings. So this, you know, this is about Australia's, are we as good as, as our word? And, and I was wondering how things like offshore detention or you know, assisting the US in blockading Yemen would go in our, in our international dialogues rather than you know, our, our team that must win you know that must win for us to love them you know I think the Big Bash will have a great summer this one as people turn away from the, the summer without Steve Smith and without Dave Warner That's interesting. What, what, okay. did, what did you think of the uh, of the public response to uh, to the ball tampering in South Africa well the public response or the international response well I guess I the, I, yeah I, I guess think the, the public response was the public response was um, reflected a kind of a lingering um, an emergent disaffection. I, I think there is a sense of, there has been a sense of disquiet in the public for some years about the way in which the Australian team kind of uh, deports itself on the field. Uh, there, is a, there is a kind of a, a distance that's opened up between the public and their, their cricketers. They, our public likes to feel a sense of proprietorship, ownership of this mm -hmm. cricket team. They want to feel good about them. And it's been a while since they uh, since they have. Uh, you know, it's interesting that we you know we beat England uh, last summer. Now mm -hmm. that usually has been a cause of immense satisfaction to to Australians. But I didn't really detect it. Uh, I didn't think that we we got much pleasure out of it at all. We turned mm -hmm. up in, uh, in in great numbers, mm -hmm. but it wasn't a series that was particularly memorable. Uh, it didn't create any um, great stories. Didn't throw up any. You know, luminous new stars. Mm. It was a it was a good job done efficiently, but uh, but not very inspiringly. Uh, and then, when Australian players were proved to have transgressed in in South Africa, there was a sense on social media. You read in the comment section underneath your pieces that this, for a lot of people, was the last straw. You know, they were sick of cricket. They were sick of cricketers. They were all overpaid prima donnas. Uh, and this. This particular incident gave people an outlet, gave people a, a, an opportunity to express their indignation. Mm. So it wasn't just simply the um, what took place in South Africa. It was uh, it was that, that it was at the end of a of a of a, um, of a continuum of uh, of, of behaviours and, uh, and and attitudes. Internationally, I think we've um, we're not popular. You know, we and we haven't been popular again for, for some time. We're felt to be a bit preachy. We're felt to be a bit, um, a bit pompous. Uh, that we kind of tell everyone else how what's the right way to play the game. Uh, we are a bit abrasive, and and I, uh, the cricket world kind of uh, is used to that. The cricket world is kind of just says, well, that's Australia. Um, I was talking to an international coach the um, the other night, and he was saying, you know. Australians are foolish because they think that the way in which they behave on the on the field is an advantage to them. It makes them unpleasant to play against. But everyone else is used to it now. It's not really an advantage at all. It's just the Australians carrying on uh, and you know trying to create this kind of cult-like atmosphere around their team. But the fact is, we all know that they're just not very good. They're certainly not as good as they used to be. Mm. So they talk a good game, but uh, but but can they walk it? 
Well, um, unfortunately, we're going to have to go let go now, um, Gideon, but it's been uh, great to have a chat with you, and thanks for indulging us with a bit of cricket chat at the end there. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, much obliged. Thank you, Gideon. Okay. Thank you. Cheers, boys. Bye. Bye. Well, um, we're going to go straight into alternative news now, I think. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah, boom. Nitty-gritty, Welcome back, Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and obviously everyone knows that that music means that it's time for alternative news, and Jackson, you've got something you wanted to start off with this morning? Yeah, I've been uh, beginning to read the new quarterly essay by Richard Dennis, uh, it's called Dead Right, how, how neoliberalism, I keep stumbling over that word, ate itself and what comes next. It's a... I've only read the first, you know, twenty odd pages, but I'm while I'm really enjoying it, it's also quite um quite sad. Uh and I guess what it's looking at it's something that's you know, is not is not new to a lot of three C R listeners, I'm sure. But uh there's just some you know, really it's a critique of neoliberalism and an ex and an exploration of what it has done to uh, our society and particularly our relationships to government. You know, I guess one of the core ideas of neoliberalism is that it is a um, supporter of small government, of governments that are that have a minimal impact on the business community, and that it really looks towards organisations, whether they be corporations and private for-profit businesses or not-for-profit or non-government organisations, to deliver what historically were um, government projects. But something that uh, Dennis highlights, which I think is really worth touching on, is that we live in an era where uh, the names of companies have replaced the names of states, people and organisations that used to grace our great public institutions, such as galleries or stadiums or uh, what he says is they they never grace things that people have a negative impact on, only uh, things that they have a positive relationship with. For example, we used to have Lang Park in Brisbane, yeah, which is now Suncorp Stadium. Yeah, now uh, Lang uh, was named after a Presbyterian minister who did a lot of work around settling immigrants. Did a lot of uh, early in, in the history of Australia. Did a lot of, you know, good community work. Meanwhile, Suncorp is an insurance company. Yeah, but now when we go off to see, you know, the the state of origin or the, the Broncos, we're thinking about that it, that it's Suncorp that are responsible for this great stadium. But in fact, 
the 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 management and operation costs of Suncorp Stadium, the vast majority of them are paid by the state of Queensland. Mm. It's similar here in Victoria where we have Telstra Dome or soon to be uh, Marvel Stadium. We're talking 1% or 2% of the total operating and maintenance costs of these buildings. The vast majority, 70%, 80% of those costs come from our state government. But we don't, when we're, when we're going off to our weekend leisure activities, we're not... The, the thing about the government being responsible is that we, we can actually take ownership. We can say, well, the government has spent our taxes, you know, money that we've, we've all gone off to work, we've paid our taxes... And now we have these uh, great social goods to share, such as a large stadium or a national gallery. The one that he says is just shows you how crazy neoliberalism has gotten is at the Australian War Memorial, where in a quest for efficiency, in a quest to keep down costs in maintaining, you know, what is was the example he gives is at the War Memorial, every single man and woman who lost their life in the First World War, their names are presented in the same size font, in the same burnished copper plate, because in death, all people are equal. Mm-hmm. But today, the names of the major sponsors are much larger than the names. They're, they're not all equal. They're donating different amounts. Yeah, and yet, even when they are donating the largest amount and have their name emblazoned across the front of the Australian War Memorial, again, according to Dennis, it's just a few percent of the maintenance and operating costs, but they are what is front and centre. And sadly, under neoliberalism, we've reached a point where a war memorial, something that you know should make us think, perhaps, yes, uh, never forget, but also never again, one would hope. The major sponsors currently are Boeing and Lockheed Martin. He, he goes, he goes I, I mean, I just find that shocking. Well, I think... Um Jacob on a Friday rave um, last Friday was speaking about the way that um, the military has gone, we, we know, f- for a long time into universities, but now also high schools as well. And I think this speaks to that as well. When when you stop funding something, then it the money still needs to come from somewhere. And it's not a, co- it's not a coincidence that the government stops putting funding into, say, schools and and then um, the military comes in and provides that mm. that um, that bit of stopgap. We you know we've seen that in America for a very long time, where Coca-Cola and McDonald's and companies like this has been sponsoring schools with Coke available everywhere, and mm. you know the kind of long-term effects that has on the children. Here in Australia, we have Ronald, Ronald McDonald sponsoring our children's hospitals. Mm. Now I find that a bit dissonant myself, considering the health value of McDonald's food. Um, one thing in Dead Right, this new quarterly essay by Richard Dennis, is he's talking about you know what neoliberalism constantly asks us to do is to turn every um, interaction into something that is boiled down to economics. So that when we're talking about health or education, for example, we're not talking about the outcomes for the people that need both health and education. We're, co- we're talking about the cost it is to society. And we're, we're constantly uh, making these impossible... Um, equations like what is an acceptable uh, level of malnutrition in our nursing homes uh, to keep the costs of those nursing homes down. And apparently, according to Dennis, the current acceptable percentage for malnutrition amongst our elders is 63%. So 63% of people are not getting the right food in in state nursing homes. Uh, But that's okay because we've dropped the cost of running those nursing homes by X amount. One thing he says you'll never see companies taking credit for is you don't see, um, what's the name? You don't see Transurban along the side of your new toll road because <laughs> then it just becomes 
you know, something that the government has done. You know, that's mm. not something that a company has done or is profiting from. That's something the government. And they have caused all that traffic and they've, you know, dug up my beautiful suburb and that's my, my taxes being wasted on a road that we don't even need. Mm. Anyway, I just think he highlights very well in the part that I've read so far some of the ways that he confuses our relationships with essential services that the government needs to provide. And I, I just would implore our listeners, you are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, uh, if you've just tuned in, I'd implore our listeners to go out and get a copy of the quarterly essay. It's, a, it's always a good read and I think this one's really, really relevant. And thanks to my brother for telling me I should pick it up. Um, well, I wanted to touch on a couple of things. Um, one thing that I was reading this morning in today's copy of The Age on page six um, is about the voting age um, should be lowered to 16. Is um, I, I wrote a paper for uni last semester on um, compulsory voting, so it kind of struck my attention. And I guess I had always, um, well, always, but uh, over the last you know little while or whatever, I guess... Um, had not really not been in favour of compulsory voting in you know the sense that it's undemocratic and um, you know people should have the right to, to vote and, and unfortunately we sort of you know we don't necessarily have someone that I'm sure a lot of people 3CR listeners would like to be voting for and you know it's hard to see the kind of the outcomes of what you would like out of election. Mm, I, but I think um, but yeah I guess doing it through the course of writing the paper I change my mind to actually um, be in favour of compulsory voting. And um, certainly I think that there are other models around the world that we could add to that would increase our um, democratic process. But, you know, you only have to look at things like what's happened in the US and the Brexit vote and the way that the Cambridge Analytica and, and you know, anything else is able to manipulate that to cause a... a an outcome which I think is not favourable for most people. Yeah, my cons- I'm interested to hear what shifted you, therefore, to compulsory voting, because my concern with compulsory voting has always been the undue influence that this gives to media, and media is becoming more and more dynamic, as you just touched on, with you know things like bots on social media and kind of directing you towards um, you know sp- echo chambers and spaces where only your own view is reflected. But I think one of the problems with compulsory voting is that you may have very little interest or an individual may have very little interest or very little knowledge of the uh, thing that they're voting on, whether it be a local, state or federal election, and they may have uh, deep concerns about one particular niche issue, but then very little concerns about a whole range of other things. And in that few weeks leading up to the election, they tune into the mainstream media in, in the you know, probably 10 years ago, that was more apparent. Perhaps now they'll they'll jump onto their Facebook or they'll jump on Twitter and they'll get a little uh, pulse reading of the um, of the current climate, and then they they're forced to make a decision. And I just think that means that sensational media and sensational social media, which is just as effective, I would argue, takes a huge role. And 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 we've seen in Australia the impact of someone like. Murdoch and the amount of outlets he controls, um, or his business interests control, I should say. I don't think he's individually pressing all the buttons, but uh, it's um, yeah. I just I, I just worry with compulsory voting that you end up with outcomes heavily influenced by the media. But I don't think um, you know that's true. That um, I think Murdoch, uh, with the exact quote, but he said something along the lines of. You know, why would he ever run for you know president, prime minister, or whatever, when he already has um, influenced and, and elected so many kings around the world or whatever. Um, but I don't think that would change. You know, I think that 
in all likelihood, uh, if the, it's not compulsory and the people are not voting, um, that Murdoch is still going to influence those outcomes and you're still going to have the media having that big impact. You just won't have as many people voting. And I think that you know, one of the big uh, critiques of compulsory voting is that you get people voting who are disinterested or um, just vote on whatever they you know, they vote in the same way all the time or how the media tells them to or whatever, which is, you know, I guess somewhat what you're saying there. But what it does do, and I think what the evidence shows, is that it engages people in politics. And I think that while I think it's great in the abstract to make an argument that compulsory voting is undemocratic and the real way to change the world is to be protesting, to be um, involved in agitating at your workplace, to join your union, to be listening to you know alternative media, 3CR, all that kind of stuff. That's true, but unfortunately the majority of people are not engaging in that. So you know, while they're not doing that, I think it's better that they have some political engagement, you know, even if it means for two months every three years that they engage in something while they've got a, a state or federal election coming mm. up. I think that that is better for when that moment comes, when they can become politicised, when something does affect them or they just, you know, their consciousness gets to a point of, like, wanting to do something, they have a basis to move forward. You know, I think that we still want um, political engagement as much as possible. And yet, for those few months of political engagement until the time that it's their job threatened or it's their local park and they do get active or it's their fed square, Mm -hmm. uh, there's four years or three years of government that does a whole range, makes a whole range of decisions in their name that they may be unaware of. I'm, I'm interested in what you think of, of, a, of an approach like Flux Party, you know, which is active here in Australia and also in parts of South America now as well, where you have an elected representative to a, you know, a standard kind of parliament, but then each decision they vote on, whether it's in the lower or upper house, is a vote from the members of that uh, organisation via a, a smartphone app or via a website platform so that it is democracy in action and not just voting for a party on an issue that means something to you and then they roll out all of these other things. You know, you know, a good example perhaps is in Tasmania where you might be interested in working in forestry uh, therefore, that you don't think about uh, conservation, but you, you know you vote for a right-wing party because you want to keep your dog logging wood. But then it turns out, you know, they're going to be doing something awful, like setting up a detention centre in the middle of your town or something like that. You know, like I think it Flux sounds is- like it is really open to being manipulated. That's the first thing I'd say. But, I, I mean, but so is our current system, and and, and more and more revealed so all the time. I just feel, I just feel like we, we, we've got the technology to make democracy a bit more real time, mm. and it's just about building it to be secure. Yeah, I, I, I don't I mean, know much about what you're saying. I mean, it sounds um, interesting, and I think that embracing some of those things can have really positive effect as long as that that technology is not able to be completely manipulated. Just because well, one aspect can, it doesn't mean we should accept something else that can easily be. But mm. I think the main thing is that we need to be um, politically engaged and, and whatever that may be for different people at different times, I think, is worthwhile. Um, I'll just touch, the article is interesting because um, in the research um, I was doing for the paper that the the age that um, has the least amount of people that vote uh, or are and are not on the electoral roll or either, um, is the, the youngest age group, like 18 to 21. And, you know, that means that, by and large, that those, those groups as well, the research um, that from the AEC backs up that 
their issues are not being heard. So uh, while the people are not are not um, voting, also they're not getting um, there's not issues for young people. And so this is what um, Professor George Williams is talking about in in this study about you know if younger people 16 and 17 are able to vote, then you know perhaps they will get some more of you know they'll be able to campaign around issues that will um, that affect them and they might get those their voices heard. Yeah, and we might see politicians um, making policy with young people as the target for that policy. Yeah, and hopefully we may actually see some younger politicians involved. One of the people, Green Senator Jordan Steelejohn, who's um, I think the yeah the youngest senator in Parliament, um, is a is a supporter of this. And there's a submissions um, for the inquiry, which is happening at the moment. Um, so the submissions for the inquiry close on August 10 into um, lowering the voting age. And your position now is to do so? Oh, I, I, I think we should definitely lower the voting age. But, yeah, my I, I'm position, what, what my position changed was around compulsory voting. But, mm. yes, I, definitely young people should have a say. Well, I have a song that was involved in me becoming uh, active in politics. Perhaps we could play that and it may... I'm sure if you're already listening, you're fairly involved in politics. But we could play it and then... Um, what do you reckon? Yes, let's hear it. Okay. It's pretty daggy, but it's a good song. Don't you know talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know talking about a revolution it sounds like a whisper while they're standing in the welfare lines crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation wasting time in the unemployment lines sitting around waiting for a promotion don't you know talking about Gonna rise up, get there, yeah. Poor people gonna rise up and take what's there.
And of course, that was Tracy Chapman, and it is uh, a great song. The whole album is a good, a good album. Um, it is. Um, so right now we have uh, Over the Wall, and Over the Wall is continuing their discussion with the CEO of the Tenants Union, Mark O'Brien. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham, and this is Over the Wall. Today's episode is in two parts. To begin, I'll be talking to Mark O'Brien from Tenancy Victoria about public housing. And in the second half, Peter Davis will update us on some of the recent campaigns and news for people on low incomes. Mark O'Brien began our conversation with a snapshot of public housing in Victoria, including the number of properties, the size of waiting lists and comparisons to other states. Victoria has historically had the lowest proportion of public and community housing of any state in Australia. But in addition to that, no states in Australia have consistently invested in social housing to an extent that would even match population growth, let alone unmet demand. All of the states have long waiting lists. The waiting lists have been artificially managed by restricting eligibility criteria. So the actual level of need is much higher than the waiting list would indicate. So in Victoria, for example, there's about 75, maybe 80,000 social housing dwellings. Now that counts a lot of stuff that's been built over a long period of time. So it probably sounds a bit better than it actually is. It's still only around about 3% of the total housing stock, so that's low by interstate comparison. The waiting list itself is closer to 40,000. In order to just meet the demand from the waiting list, the social housing system in Victoria would have to increase substantially. Next, Mark painted a picture of the increasing exile of poorer renters to the fringes of Melbourne as the inordinate length of the public housing waiting list leaves them marooned. We know that in Melbourne, for example, that less than 1% of rentals are affordable for someone on a statutory income. And that 1% is in places all on the fringe of the city. So we're talking about places like Dramana down the south, out past Cranbourne in the southeast, out in the east, Lilydale, the Yarra Valley, out in the north, places out past Craigieburn and Epping, and in the west, out past Sunshine, so really getting out towards Deer Park and places like that, and out in Werribee. These are all places where there hasn't been a lot of property to recycle out of homeowners. So if you think about Dramana, what you're getting there is properties that were old holiday houses that are coming into the mainstream rental market. So these are poor quality properties in really poor locations. So they're affordable for a reason, but it's a disaster for people on low incomes to be trapped in that part of the rental market. It's a terrible outcome. So these are people that would benefit from social housing, but they're not on any waiting list anywhere. Mark went on to point out two major impediments to a more vigorous public housing bill in Victoria, the federal versus state standoff and the huge capital costs involved. Part of the problem is duck shoving between the state and the Commonwealth about who's responsible to fix that problem. Many times the Commonwealth tried to retreat 
from responsibility for housing and make it all the state's responsibility. And unfortunately for the states, they're not the taxing part of government. The income to the states is limited, and this area in particular, housing, is a very expensive area to get results in. So even if you spent in Victoria $500 million a year for 20 years, you would still probably just be dealing with the waiting list, not even dealing with population growth. Uh, So that's a substantial amount of money and the kind of investment that was done after the war, but no government's been brave enough to do since. Finally, Mark described recent Victorian initiatives to sell off public housing stock to finance public housing rebuilding, and what effects this is likely to have. So what's going on at the moment is there was a public housing renewal program that was announced that covers, I think, nine sites across Metro Melbourne, The nine sites that have been announced are a combination of public-private redevelopments where the sale of either the land or the private dwellings will subsidise the social housing that will be rebuilt there. The return on those is very modest, though. The government's at least saying it's got to be 10% return, but that's pretty small. So the numbers, when you look even across the nine developments, are tiny in relation to the demand and the need for building. So the main benefit of the redevelopment is really better quality public housing, not more public housing. That's not insignificant, but we'd like to see a process where you actually do a bit more of both. So you get the better quality, but also you get some more public housing on the ground. We'd like to thank Mark O'Brien once more for his time and insights. I dreamed I dwelled in a homeless place Where I was lost alone Folk look right through me into space And passed with eyes of stone O homeless hand on many a street Except this change from me A friendly smile or word is sweet as fearless charity. Woe working man who hears the cry and cannot spare a dime. Nor look into a homeless eye, afraid to give the time. So rich or poor, no gold to talk, a smile on your face. The homeless ones where you may walk receive amazing grace. Where I was lost alone, folk look right through me into space and passed with eyes of stone. On Over the Wall, we're going to talk now about a tightening of social security claim requirements, which is called Remove Intent to Claim. The change is that people making a claim will no longer receive payments or concession cards from the date on which they contacted the Centrelink Department of Human Services and expressed an intention to make their claim. People will receive payments and concession cards from the date they actually submitted their completed claim. So the period of grace has been lost where a person makes their claim, shows their need for intent, 
and has to go ahead and collect the paperwork and complete and submit. So when the submission is finally accepted, then the person's payments can begin only then. This seems like a small thing, but for a lot of people, that's the difference between perhaps six weeks of getting payments and six weeks of zero income. Once again, our federal government is looking to money squeeze from people in the most desperate financial situations, and you can sure bet in the next sitting of parliament they'll be pushing for their tax cuts to big corporations. From the most poor people of our country, cut, cut, cut every way they can, and also, which we'll be talking about in coming weeks soon again on Over the Wall, the robo-debts that are being applied to many people unjustly because they've been incorrectly calculated by computerised systems. We'll be talking about the continuing impact of Centrelink robo-debts in the coming weeks on Over the Wall, and we'll be speaking again to Not My Debt. Here in South City, life is hard. We can't receive any government relief. Won't you please? Please give the president my honest regards for this regarding me. There's too much crime. In these centuries, my sentiments exactly. Government and big business hold the first reins. When I worked, I worked in the back ends. I'm at the mercy of the world. Guess I'm lucky to be alive. Here in South City, life is hard. can't receive any government really won't you be you miss the president my and that was over the wall and um it's part of an ongoing discussion around tenancy issues um yeah it was great to listen to again and we are. I just want just before we go to it, I guess we'll just um, let people know that there's been uh, another incident in Palestine over the, the weekend, and um, we might just have some details of that towards the end of the show um, to update listeners on um, something that I know a lot of people will be interested to hear. Mm. Uh, up next, we have um, Jill Paris, who is a refugee activist, a photographer and an author, as well as being a mother and grandmother, and she lives on Victoria's Surf Coast. She's a member of Rural Australians for Refugees, and she's recently published her second book in collaboration with um, a man called Man Man. He was a former detained asylum spe- uh, speaker who until... Uh, seeker, I should say, who until January this year was being held by the Australian government on the PNG island of Manus. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for joining us. Morning. So, Jill, you've written two books now with Man Man, who was uh, on Manus for years. Can you tell us what moved you initially to make contact with detainees on Manus Island? Uh, Look, I've worked with asylum seekers for years at EMC, which is part of the Brotherhood of St Lawrence. I retired and I wanted to keep contact with refugees, so I 
joined Facebook because I heard that was the best place to make contact. Um, and I wanted to do that because I hate the way our government scapegoats vote people. Um, and I guess I wanted to make contact with one or two people, not uh, just a sort of anonymous bunch of people coming by sea. Mm. So to see the people behind the headlines. Yeah. Yeah. I think what really comes through in both the books is just the blossoming of the relationship that the two of you formed, uh, beginning with your shared love of photography. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yours and Man Man's friendship? How did it form and, and how, did it, how does it continue to grow? Look, first of all, I saw his photos and I just loved them because he takes photo, took photos mainly of water and wind and sky and I just loved the way he caught the light on the water, the reflections on the water, uh, that you could always see the movement. Um, and it just became part of our life that we would say good morning and good evening to each other. And often the good night would come with the sunset on mm-hmm. both sides, wherever we were. Um, I, and I guess the most important thing about my relationship with man is I just... I just wanted to get to know him as a person, not as a refugee. So I never asked him any questions except about the things that we had in common, like um, photography. The situation and day-to-day reality for people uh, living in indefinite detention is incredibly heartbreaking stuff. Um, In the foreword to your second book, your friend Hashiv describes the experience of indefinite detention as soul-destroying. What meaning, the subtitle of your first book is Making Making Meaning on Manus. What meaning were you able to make out of the production of that first book? Um, Look, what I love about man is his capacity to find beauty wherever he is and even in the depths of despair to find ways of just holding himself together and finding the best that he can out of every day. And he did that through things like um, his photography, which he paid a lot of attention to. He loved swimming. Uh, He learned to crochet, and he crocheted like you wouldn't believe. Mm. He was very productive. Um, And he roller skated. Um, So he, he just spent as much time enjoying what little freedom he had on the island. Through, and, the experience, uh, through the experience, John, I'm sorry to interrupt, have you, ha- have you been able to make any meaning or any sense into what our government is doing to men like Man Man? Oh, look, I hate it. Um, I hate the way they kill, they kill hope and well-being, and um, I, I don't know why they do it. Um, well, I do know why they do it. I guess they do it to... Scare, scare our population, our electorate, um, and to show that they can do whatever they like. You know, it doesn't seem to mean, matter how control, how cruel or uncontrolled their power, we just seem to take it because it's done to somebody else. So it's James here, Jill. It seems like looking through your books, and it seems you know really able to try to find the kind of beauty within. Um, you know, there's pictures of flowers and, and it's like the water and things like that. And um, as you said a, a couple of times, it, you know, it's a really horrible situation for asylum seekers coming to Australia. But 
you're able to kind of see through that into the beauty and, and man as well, obviously, to see the, the beauty as well. I think that's a it's a really amazing kind of um, ability, you know, in such a horrible circumstance. I have to say this is about man, not me. Hmm. I mean, he just is able to wring the, some joy out of any situation. He uh, His capacity to um, hold himself uh, to meditate, just to, to be and to look for the beauty is, is what I think held him together. I mean, because he went through some pretty awful stuff and um, there were times when he was very depressed. Yeah, I think it comes, I know it is a story about man and, and his survival and, you know, there, there is some, some good news in, this, in the second book as it continues to document man's artwork, which I, I will say the crochet work is unbelievable as well. Uh, the, the second book is called 45 Days and it was published late last year uh, covering a period from, or, sorry, early this year, covering a period from late last year, late 2017 to early 2018, as direct resistance developed uh, strongly among the Manus detainees. And for Man Man in the book, uh, this was a time where he was finally released as part of the US-Australia refugee exchange deal. Reading the book, it seems like this was a very complicated time for Man emotionally. Can you yeah, elaborate on think, that? Yeah, I think it's important really to understand that when the guys were told to leave the initial camp, um, they stayed where they were. They didn't leave the camp. And Man Man, despite actually not believing what they were standing for, stayed with them for three weeks in solidarity with their movement. And it was only when he felt that his life was at risk because he hadn't eaten for three days that mm. he decided he uh, three sorry three weeks. He decided he needed to move because he wanted to survive. Um, so he, he is somebody who is incredibly compassionate about other people. Um, while he was preparing to leave, his, in, his hope for himself was continually tinged with his absolute despair about an old elderly friend he had who he had taken care of in the camp. And he was really terrified that this man who couldn't speak English wouldn't survive without him. So there was an immense sorrow at leaving this person. Uh, and that continually tinged his excitement. So this was uh, Abu who had a heart condition, is that correct? Yes, it was Abu who had a heart condition and he just couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't let it go because he was just worried that... Um, He'd been close to death several times and that he would die. And Jill, do you know how Abu, um, if he did survive that, that period of um, <clears throat> hunger strikes and um, denial of medication from the Australian officials? Uh, I haven't followed that up with man because I don't want to take him back to the tragedy of what he's left behind. Um, I, I know that what I've done, what I have done is I've advocated strongly with my local member for Abu um, and give, specifically given his name to Sarah Henderson, who is my um, parliamentary rep. Mm. Um, and I, I actually did the same thing with Man earlier on. Um, and I hope that something will happen for him. I told her that he's close to death. Um, but I haven't actually followed that through. Mm -hmm. 
One, I was listening to Archie Roach speak over the weekend about his song Took the Children Away and he said he never gets sick of playing that because each time it's part of a healing process for him and I wonder if um, for Man Man as well if that was a part of the process for him is getting documenting um, you know getting these books out and, and the photos as well if that's going to play a part in the kind of healing in some small way to the you know tragedy of what he's faced. Um, look, I, I think I think they were really important to him at the time. Uh, I, I actually the reason I wrote Man Man is because, um, well, initially, just to, to um, show solidarity with him. But then I decided to sell it broadly to try and raise funds for him, so that I could pay his airfare because they have to pay that back when they get to America. Mm. And um, I couldn't believe he was when very I grateful that. for that. Mm. Um, we did we did make enough money for that, and then once we'd paid that, um, he actually chose to have the rest of the money go to the people on Manus to continue looking after them. So we still sell the book through ARA, but the funds now go to uh, Manus. Yeah, and there's a couple of questions following on from that. I want to talk to you a little bit in a moment about um, the Rural Australians for Refugees uh, work and uh, their aims uh, for, for policy. But there's a really uh, beautiful portion in the first book where you, concerned by a period of, of intense sadness, as you've described, and torpor in man's correspondence, you send him a gift of roller skates to cheer him up. And I, I understand those skates... Uh, are now being put to a fundraising use uh, while man is in America. Look, I, I spoke to him about that because he said to me, I want you to publicise the fact that I'm going to go on a, a holiday, a roller skating holiday. He's going from Atlanta in Georgia to Orlando in Florida, which is about 300 miles. Wow. Um, and um, he, I asked him, so why do you want to do that? And he says, oh, one is for fun and adventure. And the second thing is that I want to make some specific comments to Australia. I want to, sh to say to them that PNG is a dangerous country and I could never use my roller blades properly there. And the second thing I want to say is that I now love my skates and I use them to enjoy my freedom. They help me to feel entirely free. So, so he doesn't want to raise funds, he just wants to raise awareness. Okay, so it's not a fundraiser, it's an awareness-raising 300-mile uh, yes. skate. That's yes. very good. Is there any way to follow his progress? Is he publishing that anywhere? Um, that... He will be, he will be um, posting on his page, which will be his man-man page on Facebook. And so, he's very keen for as many people to follow him as possible. Okay, well, I'll get on and do that. Um, so do you think, um, Jill, that the US-Australian Refugee Exchange has been a good policy for those who could raise the funds and have been resettled? Well, it, 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 they have to raise the funds to pay their fares only after they arrive. Mm -hmm. um, Man actually just recently has shared his sadness that some of the people that have gone to the States are spending the money that they've got from the government on having a good time. And man, he's a he's a very focused young man. I mean, he, since he's been there, he's decided that he wants to live in his own accommodation, which he so that he's renting free from government support. 
he's got himself a, a really good job in a hotel where he um, serves people at a spa, um, and he's started. He's starting to study. I think it's this week. Um, so he's really, you know, sort of taken on American life with gusto. But he's very afraid for the people who are not doing what he's doing. He says that he's really afraid that some of these people will lose hope in America too. I suppose the after effects of four or five years of um, detention affect people very differently. And, you know, it's great oh, that man has been yeah, able I to... Um... Yeah, I might have wanted to party too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um... So I'm not judging the other people at all. Uh, as actually, man is not either. He's just saying he's sad that they, <clears throat> you know, he's worried for them. Mm. Look, there's an there's an interesting analysis of your approach to activism, Jill, from your friend Hashiv, who who writes both the books forwards, uh, where they say your activism not just with Australia's uh, d- detained refugees, but historically in your work against apartheid South Africa, where you were born, it's not based around oratory or traditional organising, but around simple, pure, and deep personal relationships. Do you think yep. do you think this approach can change this government's or the next government's? inhumane approach to asylum seekers? Uh, do I think it could? Look, I don't... Basically, I don't know what to do. But, well, what I do know is that I spoke directly to Sarah Anderson about Man Man and about his struggles, and um, I specifically asked her, what would you do if you heard stories of... And what did she say? I, I said... I told her about Man. Yeah. And I said to him, I'm scared this man is going to kill himself and the blood will be on your hands. And how did she... That is what I said. How did she Um, respond? um, She said, give me his name and we'll try and get him out of there. And I then said to her, "Um, it's not just man, there are many, many other people in the situation. And she said, well, give me 20 names. Um, I only found 12 people who were prepared to give their names, but I gave them to her. Mm. Um, and I, con- you know, I continue with ARA to speak to anybody I can through stories because I believe that it is through stories that people actually see the person, not um, you know, not the dreaded horde from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. You really touched on the use of fear that the government has in in terms of making this policy uh, continue to be accepted by the Australian people, despite you know the horror that is inflicted on these individual human beings. And I, I think there's a it's a really interesting thing that rural Australians for refugees. I know you're part of the Aries Inlet chapter, but you know one of the big fears is an economic one about around the loss of jobs you know there not being enough jobs in australia there being too many people in australian cities but i imagine that narrative is quite different outside of australian cities where uh, there is a desire for more uh workers and uh more more people to come and 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 do some of some of the labor that's needed in in regional victoria would that would that be accurate does that have, does that have something to do with your action um look i choose to work in Aries Inlet because I love the people there and their spirits. Uh, but I also know uh, that there have been some places like, uh, I always get it wrong as it would, I think it's Rodonga, uh, where they just do fantastic work with people. They have them come over and live in communities and help on the land. And 
but also form communities and then uh, become part of the society and, you know, sort of there's some on the city council and they're educating uh, other people uh, so they become involved in all aspects of the community and they just add such immense richness. Mm. Um, you know, and the Wodonga people we met while we were at the RA conference this year were just so enthusiastic about these very, very brave, um, amazing people. You know, it's only amazing, an amazing person who would dare to get on a boat, I reckon. Yeah, I agree. Um, look, Jill, thanks very much for taking some time this morning and talking to us, and thanks for the two books that you've made thus far. Do you think, do you think there'll be another? Who knows? <laughs> there are, I mean, I, I make books on things that interest me, and I've done some things since, but not on refugees, but I may again. Um, and, Jill, if people are interested in getting a copy of the book, I was lucky enough to pick up a few, but where, where can they get one? Uh, look, they can contact uh, ARA or they can go on Amazon and get it there. So ARA, is there a, a website or a Facebook page? Or? Uh, oh, look, probably it's best for people to just give people my um, email address if people want to. Okay. Uh, Get a copy, they're welcome to contact me and I'll send them a copy. No worries, we'll pop something up on Twitter and, and see if anyone requests. But thanks heaps very much for your time this morning. Okay, pleasure. Thanks, Jill. Thank you. Bye. Well, um, that was a great chat and it's, it's really interesting to hear, I guess, from you know different aspects of activism as well. And um, The Rural Australians for Refugees have been around for a long time doing great work. Mm, yeah, I just think it's um, an interesting uh, pastime. You know, it's a lot of... They're, they're pretty uh, detailed books. They're self-published. I just think it's... Um, you know, obviously, uh, Jill is... is a, I assume she's retired, um, and that's what she's choosing to do with her retirement. I think that's really commendable. And, um, of course, everyone, you are still on Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and we've had, um, we're coming towards the end of our show today, um, but I think we, before we wrap up, we might just have a quick chat we were going to have earlier around uh, institutions and um, responses to uh, violence and things in that aspect, mm-hmm. um, and we'll touch on a couple of uh, news items and then wrap up. So I guess you know since the um the murder of Eurydice Dixon um a number of weeks ago now we've been having an ongoing discussion around men's violence uh, on the show and I think it's important that we continue that discussion not just from the couple of weeks around um around that time but to continue it as a way of trying to you know in our small part to look at changing behaviour and changing things that are happening in society and so today I guess the part of what we're talking about you know I think what we see a lot of times what we saw um, is you know we see a response that a lot of people want their person the person um, who's committing crime and to to face um, consequences for their actions and then to to have that um, multiplied throughout society as well so you know, we already saw, and I, I think that you know this this also links in with a, a couple of other issues because I think that most likely when there is um, a crackdown on crime, that people of colour 
uh, poor people are targeted. And we already have seen a re-emergence of Channel 7 um, cracking down on, on so-called African gangs. And we also have, you know, um, huge Indigenous incarceration as well. I'd just add there's a lot of discussion in the mainstream media at the moment about the success of the campaigns running in conjunction with the World Cup. You know, if England gets beaten, so does she. I don't know whether you've seen mm-hmm. yeah. those um, those ads or those public service announcements going around Facebook, and they, they draw a connection between gambling and alcohol and domestic violence and, exist, yeah. and a connection that does exist, whether it's uh, correlated or causative, I'm not sure. But another thing that that type of analysis does is that it, is that it focuses on the type of man who does gamble, watch sport and drink, which is often a man on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. And this is, of course, an issue that affects all of society, and I don't think we should be tricked uh, into thinking that, you know, just like the, the monster in, in the dark park is not the only uh, threat, is not the only form of male violence. There's male violence in, in all aspects of our society, you know, from David Leinhelm, who we heard from last week, you know, to the your punter down at the TAB. But, yeah, I think it's really important. I also think, yeah, we're in the middle of, of, an, of, of an election here in Victoria, which is certainly going to be run on law and order issues. You know, we've got a, a supposedly someone who occasionally calls himself a socialist promising to build a youth prison at Cherry Creek, 300 million people. And then, you know, it's all kind of interconnected over in um, Western Australia. We just had another triple homicide by a 19-year-old male, it appears, or that's, or that's who they've brought in for questioning. I, I'm really interested in the work of our Sisters Inside, who, um, uh, along with um, uh, organisations, they're an organisation, I think, based out of Queensland, and they look at um, uh, female prisoners and their experiences, but also they've been doing a lot of really, inter- research, really interesting research into alternatives to prisons in response to violent crime, which I think is so important, I think so so rarely at the top levels of our society do we talk about different ways of dealing with unwanted behaviour because clearly prisons don't work. Well, one of the they have a conference. I'm not sure if it's every year or every second year in prisons um, obsolete in yeah. Brisbane. And a guest that they often have um, is Angela Davis, who is a um, very well known um, Black Panther um, activist from America, and she. Um, has written probably um, the best, um, you know, short little um, book on um, why prisons, prisons, um, you know, prisons should be obsolete and abolished. Um, yeah, I, I certainly would recommend people should read that and, and like Jackson said, to follow up on the Sisters Inside um, work that they do. They've got a website that has a lot of information that people can look at as well. The conference is coming up this year in November. Fourteenth, uh, fifteenth, and sixteenth in Brisbane. Uh, yeah, that was it. Was it was a recording of that conference on 3CR that first got me thinking about alternatives to prison. And one of the amazing things they were talking about was in uh, largely African American communities in America, where the relationship with the police is so toxic and so poor. When there is a violent crime, that they're setting up kind of community councils that will bring both the perpetrator and victim together uh, for reconciliation, remediation, and in some instances they were even talking about the perpetrator spending time in the family homes of, the, of those affected by their crimes and helping them with their lives, and that that was incredibly... Rest- which I know is, you know, I, I, I remember uh, 
it was a few years ago where a Swedish woman, she wrote a book in collaboration with her sexual assailant and they Mm. toured talking about the importance of uh, forgiveness from both sides of it. And it was, you know, greeted with, uh, it was a very provocative um, book and and, and talk. But but I think, you know, this this idea around punitive justice, this idea that you've taken something from me, you know, know, whether it's murder or uh, sexual assault, I'm, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know how um, how healing or um, effective locking someone away for the the, the term of their nat- natural life is, and, and it certainly doesn't seem to drop rates of crime. Yeah. You know, prison seems appears to be a link between prison and recidivism. Well, one of the things we seen reported um, over the last kind of week and a half or so, I guess, was that. Um, now every single child locked up in the Northern Territory's youth prison is Indigenous. Every single one. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, any children I don't want to see. Um, I think you know this is a conversation not just about the things of men's violence and things like that, but mm. a broader kind of discussion around, um, around prisons and and I guess the the kind of law and order kind of um, state that we're moving into. So I don't want, you know, people to think that we're, we're linking those things together, but, but more about the, um, the way that society in particular in Australia is trying to move towards uh, a security um, society. Yeah. I, I think we've been, um, we've spoken a lot on Monday Breakfast over the last few weeks about approaches to male violence, you know, and ways that we can uh, start to change it at a societal level. Um, I think it, yeah, it's a, it's a side issue, and, it, and it's one that that links into what prompted us to begin the conversation. You know that when uh, there there is, you know, I, I just went to get a car stereo fixed. I finally got the radio back in my car, and one of the you know the mechanic that was fixing it, you know, felt the need to tell me that he had been assaulted by um, a young person in the west of Melbourne, and that it's rife, and that it's ever you know like, and we've seen Channel Seven, and you know, a few questions revealed that it wasn't you know. That, that old story, you know, that there was a whole lot more going on in this individual's tale. But I just think it's um it's really important that we don't swing into exactly what you're describing, a security state. I mean, and you can, when you blend all these new prisons and the closing of the tapes and the armoured uh, gear of the riot police and the, you know, high-powered weapons we're giving them and... It's a pretty heady mix. There was a great tweet, um, which is quite comical, um, from footy journalist Rowan Connolly last night in the um, North Melbourne-Sydney game. He said that he tweeted Channel 7 asking if they were concerned about... Because Aaliyah Aaliyah and Majak Dor were standing in the goal square together and he tweeted Channel 7, something like, you know, were they concerned about the African gangs in the forward line um, there? Eddie had was it at Docklands? Yeah, it was. It was a good um, game too. And yeah, I thought that played was played amazingly. That was a great, um, great tweet from uh, Roko. Well, it's it is good and it is funny, but it's you know, the the race riots in LA in the 1990s. Something that precursed that was um, uh, no loitering laws that included that uh, you know more than I think it was more than two. If there were more than two, um, yep. you know young black man on the street that was considered a threatening situation and people could call the police or report it you know so people were asked to move on so a gathering of more than two people on a street corner was considered a threat and you know it's those kind of ideas you know that channel 7 are peddling that can lead to real schisms in society 
Um, well, uh, that's the end of the show today. And um, thank you, everybody, for listening in. And we hope that you enjoy the rest of your day and, and uh, keep listening to 3CR. We will see you again next week. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.